0: Hey there, my name is Madison and I'm one of the pastors at Kynos Church in Portland, Oregon. This teaching you're about to listen to is from one of our Kynos collectives. These gatherings happen once a month, typically the first Sunday of the month, and serve as a time for us to worship together and learn from the scriptures. On the following Sundays of each month, we gather in smaller groups inside homes. We call these Kynos communities. Here we share a meal and discuss the Bible together. For more information about Kainos, feel free to visit kynospdx.org. The hope of Kainos Church is that we are people finding fresh and fulfilled life in Jesus. God, we thank you that uh, we uh, have the gift to be together, to, um, to sing songs, to take part in a meal, uh, communion, to remember Jesus, what you did for us on the cross, and to engage with your scriptures, to learn more about who you are uh, and who we are in light of your word, God. So we just ask that you would, uh, you would guide us this morning as we navigate uh, the scriptures together. Would you speak to our hearts and our minds and our life, our, our actions, God? Uh, would our whole self uh, be in discipleship to you, Jesus? We love you. We praise you. and We praise in your name. Amen. Amen. So for those of you who may not know, our church, uh, Kainos, Uh, The word kindness actually comes from a Greek word, and this word means new or fresh. Uh, It is also the name of a coffee shop here in Northeast Portland. Uh, whose coffee we were brewing this morning. Uh, So we kind of borrowed their name. They gave us their permission. Uh, But we love this idea that God is doing something new and fresh in the world and in our city, as he is also tying us to something that is really ancient at the same time. Uh, There are these dichotomies, these kind of uh, complex things that, in some ways, feel they're against each other. That we're a part of something ancient, and yet we're also a part of something new, at the exact same time. And so, for the first couple months, uh, as a church, we got together and we read passages of scripture that use that word "kainos" in them. Uh, so we went through the New Testament and found these passages that use "new" or "fresh," and we talked about them together. And then once a month, the first Sunday of the month, we get together here in Bradley Hall. And we talk about it together, what we've been learning. And so uh, we did that uh, from October of 2021, kind of through the year. And then now, at the start of 2022, we are kind of going through the whole story of the scriptures together, starting in the book of Genesis, which might feel a little daunting. Uh, we don't know exactly how long this is going to take us, but we just figured hey, instead of trying to pick and choose parts of the Bible that kind of suit our fancies already or things that we already kind of believe, Why don't we just go through the whole story of the scripture together? Let's engage in it together and see what it has to teach us. So to start off the year, we've been going through Genesis, starting in chapter one. Uh, And we are going to have, again, the passage up on the screen this morning. But uh, if you want to follow along, we'll be going through the first really like 11 chapters of Genesis together, starting in Genesis one. With this idea that God put us on the earth to rule and to rest, because that is what he First, did and showed us how to do uh, in his mirrored image. The Bible says that God made us in his image, uh, and as he ruled and rested, he called us to rule and rest. So, starting in Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis in the Hebrew language actually means beginning. So, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 starts with uh, the Hebrew word reshith. And this word reshith literally is we translate into three different words in the beginning. Uh, and as we discussed a few weeks ago in our Kainos communities, uh, in the beginning, God created the galaxies. Uh, he expanded light and darkness. He created the birds of the sky, as Ryan was reading for us, the fish in the sea, and us human beings. And I wanted to just take a moment to brag about one of my favorite things about uh, our Kainos communities. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation about Genesis chapter 1, and one perspective was shared of uh, how someone believed that the the world was made in six literal days. And another perspective was shared that they thought maybe it was made in millions of years. And right there, there's a moment where in our culture and in our world today, two people disagreeing with each other. That is a really easy path to hate each other, to break relational ties, uh, to start to see someone as your enemy. And the exact opposite happened. Uh, As they shared their different perspectives, other people began to share their thoughts and we, continued this really beautiful conversation about what does this teach us about God that he made the world with intentionality? Whether we tend to think it was made in six literal days or millions of years, what does it tell us about God and about ourselves that he made us with intentionality? And I just, I felt this sense of joy in my heart as I listened to this conversation about uh, where we come from. And uh, as we discussed then and discuss a little bit more this morning, the book of Genesis is not the only creation story or origin story. There are plenty of people that have come up with plenty of origin stories over time. We have some in our culture today, uh, and we have some ancient ones as well. And at the time that Genesis was written, uh, it was not the only creation or origin story that people knew either. There was a, a creation story called the Enuma Elish. This is According to archaeologist Brian Whittle, one of the uh, most ancient or earliest creation stories ever recorded. And in this story, I'm going to quote him because it was so crazy I wasn't sure I was reading it correctly. <laughs> uh, according to him, uh, uh, this myth the gods are birthed out of swirling waters which divide into fresh water, and this fresh water became a god named Apsu. And there was a second god named Tiamat. Apsu and Tiamat. And from these two, Gods, There came a host of younger, of younger gods, but those younger gods made a lot of noise and that started to annoy Apsu. If you're a parent in the room, maybe you understand the noisy children getting on your nerves. They handled it in a way I can't really recommend. They decided, let's, let's actually kill the younger gods. Interesting strategy. The younger gods hear about this and they decide to strike first. So they kill Apsu. And these younger gods have a, a champion. This champion is named Marduk. Marduk becomes kind of the champion of the younger gods, and Marduk actually, after killing Absu, then kills Tiamat, and out of this god's blood, he creates the world, and specifically creates humans. But there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> a lot more than I probably have the uh, credentials to uh, unpack with you, but I think it's interesting for us to pause and consider, what was this teaching The Babylonian people, this was their kind of creation story. What does it teach them about their life, about their purpose as humans, about the way they're supposed to treat each other when they go and conquer other kingdoms and steal their land and their people? Well, hey, this is what the gods did to each other. So I guess that's what we should do to each other. In many ways, most creation stories, we reflect whatever we see was out there making us, whether it was a cosmic accident or we were made out of violence. Uh, we, start, we start to kind of see pieces of ourself in whatever we see the origin story of our life to be. And I think it's interesting. Some scholars also note that there's some similarities between uh, the Enuma Elish as well as the book of Genesis. Uh, these dark, swirling waters uses very similar language to the book of Genesis. Uh, additionally, Genesis 1.14 talks about how God hung the stars and the constellations to tell time. The Enuma Leash says something very similar. So some people take this and say, hey, can we really trust the story that sounds so much like another text? Are they just copying from each other? Well, a lot of our creation stories, our origin stories, even today, and have a lot of similarities. I think the question for us to ask is, what do these stories tell us about ourselves? And what do these stories tell us about God? If God made us out of violence or strife or bloodshed, what does that say to us about our purpose as humans? but the book of Genesis tells us something totally different. The book of Genesis tells us that God made us out of love and in his image. There are other accounts. The Egyptian account I was reading this week is a little too graphic for some of our younger years in the room. It is wild. Uh, I, I yeah, can't even, can't even get started with how crazy some of these other creation stories are, but what was unique to the people of Israel about their creation story was that it was that they were made, that the world was made out of love and out of purpose, that there was chaos, but out of chaos God brought order, kindness, and love. And so as we discussed that in our kind communities, we moved into chapter two that uh, God made humans with intention. and in Genesis 2, God seems to give a command in a calling, To these two people he has made, Adam and Eve. Adam, most literally in Hebrew, means man or human. And Eve means living one or the source of life, which is really beautiful. And God gives these two a command and a calling to rule and to rest just as he had. For they were made in his image. If you think about the passage that RJ read for us, God says, look, I have created all these things and I am giving you a job to rule and then to rest, just as God had. God rested on the seventh day. He calls us to rest as well. So if we go to our passage, the end of Genesis 1, 31, we'll see that, uh, uh, that God actually shows us himself, that he himself rested. As a middle school teacher, I asked my students a couple months ago, I was teaching on this passage. I said, why do you think God rested? I love their thoughts. Uh, one of them mentioned that uh, when he has a really busy day, he likes to take a nap. And I agree, <laughs> Partly, especially these days as a new parent. Maybe God needed to take a nap. Uh, maybe God was exhausted. Maybe he just wanted to put his feet up and just kind of look out and enjoy what he had done. There's room for us to think and be creative and wonder about why God rested. But the point is, I think for us to take away, that he didn't just rest for himself, but he rested To show us a picture of what we are to do as well. If we're made in his image, if he rests, then we need rest too. And it says that God set this day apart and he made it holy. Now this word holy, as soon as we hear that word, all different kinds of things might come to mind. We might think of morality or religious people who go to church on Sunday or are holy because of their beliefs or their actions. But this word simply means to be set apart or different from everything else of its kind. I think about the day my daughter was born, eight weeks ago. And yes, uh, I I promise you I was going to make a lot of analogies about her. So bear with me. Eight weeks ago, uh, I'm getting ready for work. Uh, I took a shower. I'm getting dressed. I'm putting my jacket on. I'm literally grabbing my keys when I hear my wife Madison say, Jake, I am having contractions. And in that moment, suddenly, (laughs) something holy was happening. Something separate and different than any other day I have ever experienced in my 27 years on this earth. It was totally different. And I woke up that day thinking it was just going to be a normal day. It was a Tuesday. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to come home. Make some dinner. None of that happened. It was a holy day set apart from any other day that I'd experienced before. And, you know, there are these holy moments that happen in our life quite often. Maybe there's a moment. When you are at your lowest and someone shows you kindness when no one else has ever showed you kindness in that way, that's a holy moment. The moment you move away from home for the first time, maybe you're getting your own apartment or you're going off to college or you're studying abroad and you are suddenly by yourself for the first time. It's a holy moment. (laughs) It's different from any other moment. If you remember what that's like for you and those emotions you felt, if you haven't had that moment yet. That will be a holy moment in your life someday. Maybe it's the moment you taste In-N-Out Burger for the first time. That was a holy moment for me. Yes. Set apart. It's different from anything else of its kind. Uh, my friend Brittany would tell you that Whataburger is similar and she's just a uh, heretic in that way. That's not true. Uh, In-N-Out is holy. It's set apart from anything else of its kind. And the way that we live, our morality, our actions, our love. Yes, these things can be holy, but it's bigger and deeper than that. When God calls the seventh day holy, he is setting it apart from all other days. It is to be a day of rest, unlike the other six days a week where we rule and we create and we sustain things that God has entrusted to us. On the seventh day, we rest. And this day became known to the people of Israel as Shabbat, or in English, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be this day of rest observed every week where we slow down and we celebrate all the goodness around us just as God had done when he created the universe, It's this beautiful picture that is woven into the story of Genesis 1 and 2, but that picture of beauty and life takes a very sharp turn as we enter into Genesis 3. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 3, chapter 1. You can also follow along on the screen. Genesis 3, chapter 1 begins with a talking snake. Now that right there for many of us is probably enough to kind of dismiss this whole story as a silly fairy tale. But let's remember that we are reading something very specific. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 fit within the genre of writing known as ancient Jewish meditation literature. I'm going to say that again. Ancient Jewish meditation literature. Uh, There are uh, some guys who actually studied here at Multnomah University uh, who started an organization known as the Bible Project. It's based here in Portland. And they've done a lot of work helping us uh, unpack and understand uh, the different genres that are within the scriptures. There are many different genres within the scriptures. If you think about the book of Psalms, for example, the Psalms are a book of poetry. Psalm twenty-three is one that is familiar to many of us. The Lord is my what shepherd. shepherd. Now, when we read Psalm twenty-three, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." We do not think that the author is actually a literate talking sheep. Or that God uses an actual wooden staff to corral us, okay? We know that what this author is trying to tell us is that there is this fragility that we experience as human beings. And there's a need for guidance and correction as we grow and experience the saving grace of a tender God who will never leave us. And even when we wander away, he will come after us. We understand Psalm 23 and this beautiful thing it's trying to teach us because we understand its genre, its poetry. And this is different even from the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are historical narrative accounts. They show times and places and dates. The historicity of it is very, very important. And Genesis 1 through 3, or pardon me, Genesis 1 through 11 is another genre, ancient Jewish meditation literature. And it is a, a part of scripture that we're supposed to hear multiple times and chew on and think about. And process. Is this really how we see the world to be? Or is it not? So let's read it together. And as we read it, I just want you to think about your life, your place of work, your boss, the people who get under your skin, the way that you act when you're irritated. Does any of this sound familiar? We're supposed to hear it, ingest it, chew on it, and meditate on it. So let's read Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be reading from the message translation. The serpent was clever more clever than any wild animal that God had made. And he spoke to the woman, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can actually eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, do not eat from it. Don't even touch it or you will die. And so the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you will see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. And when the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized that she would get out of what she would get out of it, she would know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate it. Immediately, the two of them did see what's really going on. They saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. And when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden, hiding from God. Now, this serpent is a character we will come to know throughout the story, a character known as the enemy or the opposer, which is translated into English as the Satan. Now, typically when we hear this uh, word used, we say it as Satan with a capital S like his name is Sam or Steve or Susie. Uh, But it's actually the Satan or the Satan, the enemy, the opposer. And what is this enemy doing from the very beginning, trying to oppose and confuse and contradict and get these two humans to think that God doesn't actually have their best in mind? He says, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what God said. But he is trying to convince them to take what is not theirs, and he promises That it is for their own good. I want to pause there for a minute. Does that sound like anything you've experienced in life? People taking what is not theirs, believing that it's for their own good. I know I can. And the story then shows us that when they do that, when we do that, we are filled with something that has previously been unknown to humans shame. Adam and Eve experience shame. I was talking about this with my friend Rob this morning. Shame is a powerful tool used by the Satan because shame causes us to hide. Look at the first thing these two humans do. They hide from God. And if we let it, shame will cause us to spiral as well. Just look at Adam and Eve. Not only do they hide, but they start to deflect blame on others. Look at verse 12, what Adam says. Well, the woman that you gave me... (laughs) As a companion, she gave me the fruit, and yes, I ate it. It's hilarious, right? He first is trying to blame God. He's like, hey, I'm lonely. I have no suitable helper. God's like, let me make something beautiful for you. Now he's going to blame God for that. Then he's going to blame her for it. And then, yes, I guess I sort of did comply a little bit. You know, as a teacher, uh, I often work in disciplinary situations with kids. I've <laughs> been dealing with quite a few myself this week. And I often have this exact situation happen. Tell me about what happened. Well, this person started it, and then this person did it, and then, yes, at some point I joined in and made it worse, but, I mean, you should really be on these two, right? We do this, and sadly, if we're not intentional about our actions and our words, not much changes as we grow older. Just think about the world around us, right? When investors and banks gambled with millions and billions of people's money and dollars, and the recession happened and the economy crashed, did the banks... And the wealthy people say, hey, this was our responsibility. We actually really messed this up for all of you guys. We're sorry. No, they blamed it on the people. They get away with it. Look at what's happening in our world right now. Russia trying to invade Ukraine. I was listening to a snippet of uh, Putin this week saying that it's actually Ukraine's fault. I don't know how it's Ukraine's fault that he would be invading Ukraine, but it's partially Ukraine's fault. It's America's. It's everybody else's fault that they're actually trying to take and invade these people. Right. This is what people do. And sadly, it's not just... Banks and foreign entities, unfortunately, if we're honest, it can be the church too. I've been listening to this podcast for the last few months called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and uh, I'm sure many of you have heard it as well. There's a pastor there uh, who displayed abusive leadership, and he hurt scores of people with his actions and his words, and he's never formally apologized, but instead, he's actually blamed the church and the people who reported the actions, abusive actions that he was doing. It's actually their fault. And this story is not just one church. I think it's really easy for us to, you know, listen to this podcast or, you know, just oh, look at what happened over there. This this is unfortunately all too common a story in the church. Right. And it can be, unfortunately, all too common within us. We do something. We experience shame and then we hide and we blame others. And when we do this, when shame takes over, instead of. God leading and guiding and ruling us, when shame guides and leads and rules us, ruling and rusting become corrupted. And we see that picture throughout the whole rest of Genesis 1 through 11. Just look at Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. God entrusts them to rule the earth, right? When we hear that word ruling, sometimes we get all kinds of ugly pictures of abusive leadership come to mind, but God actually Invited them to this holy, beautiful thing to rule and steward the earth that he had made. But when jealousy creeps in, and I think jealousy is a companion of shame, when it creeps in on Cain, he decides not to rule over what God had given him. He decides to rule over his brother, Abel, and he kills him. What God had created Cain to do, he twisted and corrupted into something abusive and deadly. If we continue on to Genesis 6, Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6 say this, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. It's spiraling. Shame and corruption into what God made us to do to rule and to rest has spiraled. We look at Genesis chapter 9. God starts over with this seemingly good person named Noah. He makes a covenant with Noah. We're going to talk about this idea of covenants over the the next couple of weeks. He makes a covenant with Noah. And what is supposed to be this beautiful fresh start? Genesis nine, Noah gets drunk. Text tells us in some way his son violates him. Noah curses his son. God has just started over, given a fresh start to these people. What do they do? Spiral it out of control. And it comes to this head in Genesis chapter eleven. Genesis 11 tells us the story of Babel and how humanity's power grab has reached an all-time low, or in this case, maybe a new high, as they built a tower to make a name for themselves and dominate everyone around them. And yes, that was a dad joke. A new high. They built a tower. Thank you. I appreciate it, Becca. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. It's here in this story that God scatters humanity across the face of the whole earth. And it's here that we see how corrupt ruling also Corrupts and destroys rest. When ruling is corrupted, resting becomes corrupted as well. And this story spirals more and more. We come to the book of Exodus, the next book in the story of the scriptures, and it goes into vivid detail about how Egypt's ruler, Pharaoh, has actually enslaved the people of Israel. And it tells us very specifically he made them do hard manual labor how many days a week? Seven. That rest that God had promised and invited them into in the Sabbath has been taken away from them. But again, God steps in. He rescues his people. He brings them out of slavery. What does this tell us about who God is? We want to unpack that more together as a community over the coming weeks that God would look upon something as wicked as slavery and step in and do something about us. What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about ourselves and what we should be doing in the world today? We'll talk about that some more in the coming weeks. But I wanted us to just note this passage in Exodus 23, verse 9. As God has brought the people out of slavery and into newness, he says to them, Do not take advantage of an immigrant or a stranger. You know what it's like to be a stranger, for you were strangers in Egypt. When God gives them this fresh start, he says, Look, you know what it's like to be ruled over. Don't rule over others that way. Treat them as image bearers. And in Exodus 20, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is actually the one that God goes into most detail on. This is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your sons nor your daughters, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Look at that attention to detail, right? God says, it's not only you that's going to rest, but also your male and female servants. Now, when we hear that word servant, what might come to our mind is slavery. But remember, God has just made a law saying, no one is going to rule over each other as slaves. This word carries much more of a connotation as employees, right? Right? So it's not that you sit back and rest while your employees scramble for you, right? It's that everyone is going to rest, even your animals, even the land, the people living on the margins. Everyone is invited into this rest. And from this moment forward, the Sabbath became a focal point of life for the Jewish people. But as they remembered and accepted it as an invitation to celebration over time, corrupt rulers began to use something even as beautiful as rest, to try to gain power for themselves, just like we saw in Genesis 3 and 4 and 9 and 11. And as the story progresses, Israel, who is freed from slavery and invited into holy ruling and holy rest, they turn into corrupt rulers themselves. And God allows them to face the consequences of of their unjust actions. They're eventually exiled from their land and ruled by many different empires, including, at the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire. And it was around this time when the Roman Empire was ruling, there was an event called the Maccabean Revolt, caused a bunch of chaos for the Jewish people. And during that time, uh, there was a group of religious leaders who kind of emerged and began to grow in power. Their name was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees created strict religious laws around everything, like what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Just to give you an example, okay, the Pharisees made a law that said a quarter mile walk, 0.25 miles, was leisurely and restful, but a 0.26 mile walk was considered to be sin. You couldn't do it. Think about that for a minute, right? This was supposed to be an invitation to celebrate life, but they created these strict rules. But I think it's pretty common for pastors and in church circles for us just to dunk on the Pharisees and be like, oh, they just made these rules because they, they're the worst. They're control freaks but it's actually a lot uh, more purposeful than that. They believed, right, that the Romans oppressing them was due to the fact that they had not obeyed God's laws. And so they actually made all of these extra laws to really zone in on the laws God had given them because they felt, well, hey, if we do everything that God has asked of us, he will overthrow the Romans and give us our land back. Sadly, they'd forgotten that they were just as corrupt rulers as Rome, or as Egypt, or as Babylon before them. So when Jesus emerges into this story in the Gospels, we see that he has come to restore all things to the way that they were supposed to be. But this was a challenge for many of the Jewish people to accept because they created their own ways of amassing power for themselves. And if we're honest, if we're honest for a moment, it's hard for me. It's hard for us to allow Jesus to challenge us in our ruling and our resting because we also have ways that we like to rule and we like to rest. Just take two of his earliest disciples, for example, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Zealots were a sect or branch of Jews who wanted to overthrow the Romans and force them out of their land by violent means. They incited rebellions and wars. They were known for actually carrying a dagger inside of their cloak so that they saw a Roman centurion and no other Romans were around. They would take their cloak out. And yeah, not a very pretty picture. That is certainly one way to try and rule the people around you. But the tax collectors... They were just as strategic as the zealots, the same end goal, right? To gain the system and kind of amass power for themselves, but they did it by exploiting others, their own people, for the sake of the Roman Empire, but also for the sake of themselves. It made them a pretty penny. So what does it tell us about Jesus that he called both of these people to follow him? I mean, on the political spectrum, zealot and tax collector, right, right? All of our political spectrum fits somewhere in the middle between those two. These people hated each other. In fact, I think it would be fair for us to assume that a zealot would probably want to kill a tax collector near the top of their hit list. And Jesus says, why don't you both come and follow me? Watch how I live my life. Watch how I rule and watch how I rest. Not by violence or stealing or exploiting others. I'm going to show you how to rule by laying my life down for others. This type of ruling, sacrificial love, is not the way of the Roman kingdom and it's not the way of the American kingdom. It is the way of the upside down kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brought forth that we sang about this morning. But it wasn't just ruling that Jesus came to restore. He also came to restore our rest. And so if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter two, we see this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding rest and specifically the Sabbath day. Mark 2 begins with stories of Jesus healing the afflicted. He's eating with sinners. He's spending time with these people on the margins, neglected by their society. And then in verses 18 and 22, he's talking with the Pharisees and he shares this picture about new wineskins. We read this a few months ago together as a community. This is our word, kynos. Jesus says that you don't put kynos wine in old wineskins. You put it in new kynos wineskins. He's really trying to get the Pharisees to wrestle with what he has come to do. And then we come to verses 23 through 28, where Jesus is again interacting with the Pharisees, this time on the Sabbath. Here's what the story says One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain, or maybe more literally, some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abithar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the con- consecrated bread, which is lawful, only for the priests to eat, They're breaking God's laws. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even on the Sabbath. The story begins with Jesus and his disciples traveling on the Sabbath. And remember that note. More than a quarter of a mile is breaking the law. So there's one thing they're doing wrong, right? Then they're picking, they're working, right? The the Pharisees have created these really strict laws, make sure that you don't even like make a loaf of bread on the Sabbath, right? So now they're doing two things wrong in the Pharisees' mind. But I want you to think about the fact that these people probably had nothing else to eat. Jesus and his friends are picking ears of corn. You ever picked raw corn before? It's disgusting. If you're eating that, there's probably only one reason. You are hungry. Maybe you haven't eaten in days. And you're walking a long distance because you're not being carried around on a chariot. You're walking because, as Mark later tells us, Jesus had no place to lay his head. They didn't even have a home. And these Pharisees would rather these people go hungry. Think about that. They would rather these people starve, right, than have something to eat on the Sabbath. They've missed the whole picture, right? Right? And Jesus responds, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Now, that may seem like an innocent enough quote to us. And this is the kind of thing Jesus says quite often to Pharisees. Have you never read? Did you never hear that story about such and such? And I wanted to kind of paint a little quick picture of this. You know, there's different levels of Star Wars fans. I'm a pretty big Star Wars fan myself. Uh, I've gotten Madison into Star Wars uh, as of uh, these last couple of years. She didn't really care before, but she's really into it. But there's this like, level within Star Wars fandom that you kind of, like, climb. Some of you look like you know what I'm talking about, right? Madison's seen all nine trilogy movies, as well as Solo and Rogue One, okay? But then there's the Clone Wars, and Rebels, and the books, and the anthology, and the lore, and that's what I start to get into. I know some of you are asleep, right? Madison's like, I can't do that. But there's a show right now, The Book of Boba Fett, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, okay? But some of that nerdy lore stuff you only get from the animated shows is becoming... Front and center in the story And I'm like Geeking out I'm like Do you see Do you see who that is And she's like I don't, I don't know who that is And I don't really care He looks weird Okay There's different levels Of Star Wars fans But still There's another level Of Star Wars fan Beyond me I had a coworker Who on the night That The Last Jedi Came out He made himself A replica Kylo Ren Costume From scratch Wore it to work that day And then wore it To the movies last night Okay if Madison's here And like I'm here On the fandom He's like here Okay there's different levels. But oftentimes what happens with people who are really, really, really into something is what do they try to do? Force everybody to be as into it as they are. Okay, I've got to try that with Madison a little bit. This is what the Pharisees do. They are really, really into it. They have made following these laws their whole life and they're trying to force it on everyone. So when Jesus says, have you ever read what David did? The Pharisees would have memorized the entire Old Testament. Right, that's like looking a hardcore, hardcore Star Wars fan in the face and saying, "Have you ever heard of Luke Skywalker?" <laughs> okay, it's not a really remote character from like a 70s animated show. Okay, this is like a main focal point, David. Okay, he's saying you must have never heard, or maybe you have heard and you've missed the point. He's showing the Pharisees that they are missing it. It isn't about rules; it's about rest. The Sabbath is not about rules. It is about rest. For Jesus ends by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay? The Sabbath is for our good. It's for our rest. And, you know, I was recently having a conversation with a good friend of mine who is uh, a Christian from another denomination uh, where Sabbath is a big part of his weekly life. And he's also from Europe. And I was asking him questions about the Sabbath and about American life and busyness. And he said something to me that has played over and over again in my mind. He said, I have found that most Americans are too busy not to Sabbath. I'll say that again. He said, I have found that most Americans are too busy not to Sabbath. Now, if we're too busy, right? Fitting something else into our life seems like the opposite of what we should be trying to do. But when our lives are filled to the brim with calendar invites and social media and obligations and 50, 60 hour work weeks, or for some of us, filled with homework and practice and chores, we are the people that need Sabbath rest most of all. A day to slow down, resist all the things that the world throws at us from, for six days, and enjoy this rest that God has invited us into. You know, outside studies have actually shown that people from my friend's denomination actually live on average 10 years uh, 10 years more than their average neighbor. Think about that for a second. They live 10 years longer than the average person that they live amongst. By taking a day off, it seems that rest, Sabbath rest, is good not only for our soul, but for our body and our mind and our family and the whole rest of our week. In fact, the very next story in Mark's gospel is this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees again about the Sabbath that seems to drive that point home even more. This is Mark chapter 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, this is on the Sabbath, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? It's quoting from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis one and two and three that we read this morning, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them and in an anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, an interesting combination of people, how they might kill Jesus. This question that Jesus asked, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? It's an extremely important question. These words, to save life, and later the word, it says that his hand was restored. These are actually the same word in the Greek text. This word is salvation. In fact, if you go through the New Testament, the word for physical healing and internal salvation are actually the exact same word in Greek. This word means healing or rescuing, salvation, right? If your football team is down 10 in the fourth quarter and the quarterback leads them on a miraculous comeback, what is that? Salvation. He's restored you to what you wanted. Internal healing, physical healing, emotional, mental, spiritual healing. When we lean into the Sabbath and we really give it a go, it is good for our physical bodies, our mental health, the flourishing of our soul. Our friends at Bridgetown Church here in Portland put it this way, in a society that is addicted to the twin drugs of accomplishment and accumulation. The Sabbath is an act of resistance. I want to say that one more time. In a society that is addicted to the twin drugs of accomplishment and accumulation, the Sabbath is an act of resistance. The world is constantly trying to push on us all the stuff that we need to accumulate. In fact, researchers have shown that the average American sees. Over 10,000 advertisements per day. 10,000 things per day being pushed on us. That was actually, the survey was from early 2020, before the pandemic. I can only imagine now how much more time we spend on our phones. I'm sure that number is even higher than 10,000 ads per day. Right? (laughs) Indeed. It's here that the Sabbath gives us a way to push back, to resist becoming a machine that simply lives to accumulate and accomplish worldly things. It gives us a chance to reorient ourselves, to slow down and remember what we really want to live for. So if you're sitting here and you're anything like me, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, yes, this sounds like something that I need and I want, but Jake, how do I actually do it? And once I try to start doing this, how can I sustain it as a rhythm in my life? What happens when shame and jealousy start creeping in because I feel like I'm not doing it the way I'm supposed to do it? This is a conversation I was having with my friend this morning. What happens when we feel like, oh, I'm not Sabbathing the way that I'm supposed to? What do we do about it? How do we make this a rhythm in our life without shame or jealousy ruling us, but instead letting God guide and lead us into something that we celebrate? So what I would like to do, I actually wanna invite my friend Becca up. um, And I just wanna have a, a little conversation about Sabbath. Becca, I was supposed to have two stools up here, so I'm sorry. Uh, perfect. I just want to have a little conversation with you about Sabbath. Um, as we've been talking about Sabbath these last couple of weeks in our Kainos communities, um, we've been just trying to make it something that we can have be a part of our life. And I was talking with Becca and Kevin this week, and they, these last two weekends, have really tried to lean into this as a rhythm for them and their family. And uh, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that, Becca. Yeah. Uh, my first question is, could you give us a brief picture of what usually comes to mind when you have previously thought about Sabbath or if you've tried to do this before, what felt tricky about it before?
1: Yeah, For sure. So I think before the last like two weekends of talking about ruling and resting and Sabbath um, in our community with Kainos, I had never practiced Sabbath before. It wasn't actually something that I ever really felt like that much of a push to practice. It seemed like something that was outside of my Christian tradition. Yeah. It felt pretty unusual for me. I grew up in uh, a Lutheran background in a church that comes from Germany, so a very like
0: uh, high, high efficiency. E- yeah high efficiency <laughs> yeah. You know, you yeah. have
1: rules for everything. Yeah. Um, and my family is like one of the most hyperactive families I know. Yeah. Both my sisters and my mom have ADHD. We are a family that is like go, 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 go distractions. Let's fill every single moment. Yeah. So my perspective of Sabbath was like, you know, that's something that I don't do. Yeah. That's something that I don't have space for in my life. Um, that's something that seems like not a worthwhile practice to me. I yeah. think I need to keep my days busy, packed to the brim. If I have some extra time, I'm gonna fill that by serving somebody or I'm gonna fill that by, you know, doing something that's productive, so.
0: That's great. I know something we've been talking about with your family Mm -hmm. is that your mom had a doctor recently tell her like, you need to slow down. Yeah. You need to let yourself rest. And I think there's many of us that feel when we try to rest like all of a sudden just we get hit with a flood of things that we need to do and need to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But over these last two weeks, can you just tell us a little bit about what you've done, yeah. um, how it's been? What has this experience been like for you these last couple of weeks?
1: Yeah, so actually sitting here listening to you yeah. share and teach us, um, I got like that Holy Spirit feeling. Mm-hmm. One of my mentors recently called it like the Holy Spirit bumps when you get those chills that are like, oh, I have to tell this story. <laughs> so I wasn't prepared to yeah. tell this. But um, yeah. the first weekend when we talked about resting, Kevin was like, okay, after, after we leave, we're gonna rest for the, the rest of the day. Yeah. Um, and we decided we're gonna go run at our favorite place to run. Um, we're gonna spend time in nature, just enjoy it. And we both had plans for our runs. We go out, we run down the path, we see somebody parked on the side of the road. And this is a really busy road, I think it's like 224, yeah, on 224, yeah. like not a freeway, highway kind of situation. Yeah. Um, And I'm like feeling a little concerned. I'm like, what's this person doing pulled over? People aren't usually pulled over here. Uh, I look at, I can kind of see in the car, see a baby in a car seat. And I see somebody at the back of the car. I'm like, what's going on? Um, And I can see that it's a woman talking on the phone. And I hear her say her phone number. And I'm like, oh, she must be calling AAA or something. Something's going on with her car. When I look back, I'll just kind of see what the situation is. So we turn around and Kevin's in front of me and I see him get stopped. He, I don't know if he had his headphones in or what, but he's kind of like, what's going on? I see him walk over, and she's asking him to help her change her tire. Hmm. Her tire had blown out on this super busy road. Hmm. Cars flying past her 50 miles per hour. Um, We stop. we do our best to help her change Hmm. her tire. Didn't go very well, thankfully, AAA was on the way (laughs) and was able to help. We forgot some of the basic lessons (laughs) of how to change a tire, you know, take off the nuts first before you raise the car. Um, but in that moment, we yeah. both felt this feeling yeah. of what we've been talking about a lot. Kind yeah. of like part of what we're called to as Christians yeah. is giving space to people yeah. and having, you know, we had a plan that day, even though we were trying to rest. Yeah. We were going to do this run. We were going to go meet friends for a sunset walk. Like we had these ideas of how we were going to live yeah. our Sabbath rest that day. Yeah. And I think God gave us that moment of like, no. do you do good or do you do evil? And even though that doesn't necessarily feel like, oh, it would have been evil for us to say, like, we're not going to help you change your tire. We have an agenda of what we need to do today. That was definitely a moment of feeling like, okay, God, yeah. Sabbath isn't what we expect for it to be necessarily. Our rest can be in spending this time with this stranger that we haven't interacted with before. We don't know what this is going to turn into. Um, so I just, yeah, I thought that was so really good. powerful to so good. hear that. Like yeah. Jesus saying, you know what? I'm actually going to do something that is not restful. I'm going to yeah. do something that hurts my back. I'm going to do something yeah. that um, takes me outside of the normal yeah. idea of what I have for Sabbath.
0: Yeah. And so. I think, I think what I'm hearing you say too, I think in America, rest typically means self-indulgence.
1: Hmm.
0: Blitz through six hours of Netflix. Right, Just gorge yourself with whatever you want to eat. Like Rest often means self-indulgence. And so when we come to the Sabbath, if we hear Jesus saying, take one day to just sit on your butt and watch TV for nine hours. I don't think that's what he's really trying to get us to think about. Right, right? Rest is different from self-indulgence. It doesn't mean we can't not watch any TV on the Sabbath, right? But something we've been talking about as a community is, what if instead of watching five hours of TV, what if we watched a film that like brings us joy that we loved as a kid or something that just makes us think of a thoughtful film that makes us connect with God or um, what if we read a book instead? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what are things that we could do that would help our soul rest and slow down? And it's not, well, Hey, I'm doing this thing. I enjoy and I see a person on the side of the road. So I'm self-indulging myself today. Sorry. You're gonna have to, that's, that's pharisaical, right? We, we, uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year, Jesus calls us, to lean into loving the people that are on the margins that are literally on this side on the margin of the highway, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not that he's calling us to be self-indulgent, but he's calling us to slow down and rest. Uh, And that may look like engaging with the person and helping them out and continuing along with their walk. Uh, It could look like a lot of different things. Can you tell us maybe one or two of the things you mentioned, like going for a walk, being out Mm -hmm. in nature. Have there been any other things that you guys have done as a part of your Sabbath rhythm that have just been helpful for you to slow down and help your soul rest?
1: I think... For me, the best part about what we've been practicing so far is the day before we're practicing ruling. We're leaning into that really hard. Yeah. Um, I love to cook is like my passion in life. <laughs> I just care so much about fueling people's bodies yes. and fueling my own body and learning about different cooking methods, different um, cultural like history around food. And so I spend a lot of time in my life creating meals. Um, And most of the time I'm like, you know what? That is the thing that I love to do in life. It still can be stressful. It still can be something that is like taking from me in some ways. So it's not necessarily like a restful, restful thing. So what I've been prioritizing is making meals the day before Mm -hmm. um, so that the next day I actually am forcing myself to take a rest from that, even though it is something that I typically enjoy to step away and say, okay, I'm not going to do that today. Because I have, Jake actually said this to me yesterday or a couple of days ago about, like, we have the other six days to focus on that. I have the other six days of the week to prepare something, to learn something, to uh, spend time, you know, spend a couple of hours a day, honestly, it takes to make all of your own food for um, fueling yourself. And so I've been working to prepare ahead of time so that on my Sabbath day I can take space away from that take time away from that and uh use something else to rest yeah. and what that has looked like for me so far is uh trying to read or yeah get out in nature mostly yeah. like yeah. those have been the things that I'm prioritizing cuz yeah. I'm not very good at actually sitting down to read yeah. on a weeknight I was an English major, I've always loved to read. <laughs> like It's something that I genuinely enjoy yeah. doing, but I always find something else yeah. to, to fill the space. Yeah. So yeah. that's been what I've been, I've been prioritizing
0: so far. Fantastic, so. thank you, Becca. Can we give Becca a round of applause? Sure. Thank you. So I think, I think right there, just a couple of nuggets. As we close, uh, we're gonna finish here, we're gonna sing one more song, and then we'll be heading out. But uh, I think there's so much so much goodness there in what you just said, Becca. Um, I think in particular, my mind is just going to how you found things that you enjoy, but you realized uh, the ways in which those things can be restful and the ways in which those things can actually like tire you out more. Um, so I think, you know, for each of us, right, there's not these specific really, really strict laws. In fact, my friend who's, uh, he's kind of like a mentor for me in the Sabbath. He said to me, what I try to do is focus on things that really bring me and my family life and celebration. We eat our favorite meal or we play our favorite board game. We do things that will be restful for us, uh, that are things that we enjoy. Um, and we just take time to slow down and remember um, God's goodness and his love. And I think the temptation with a conversation like this is that the Satan will say to us what he said to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that you're supposed to do this? Like, Do you really need it? You're busy. You got to get your kids to practice. You got to, you, you know, you have to post this. You have to read this. You got to be out doing something. There's going to be an inclination for many of us to hear the, the enemy say, I don't really actually think this is that necessary. It's good for some people, but I don't know if, I don't know if you need it necessarily. Did God really say that you needed it or did he say that some people needed it? I think that's one of the first things that we'll hear. And then I think the second thing that we'll hear as we try to make this a rhythm is you're just not doing this good enough. It's that piece of shame. That came from the very, very beginning. When we strive to even do the right thing, well, okay, I didn't do it good enough. In fact, last night, man, I was, we were having such an awesome Sabbath day yesterday. Like one of my favorite days in a long time. And then at the end of the evening, I started getting overwhelmed by thoughts of work and I got easily frustrated and I was just rude to Madison. I had to wake up this morning and a Paul asked her to forgive me because as I even let those things start to creep in, Right. And then I felt, oh, shameful. I'm supposed to get up tomorrow morning and teach about Sabbath. And I ended my Sabbath by being mean to my wife. And we got an eight week old baby. I mean, what is this? How can I say anything? Right. Shame starts to creep in. And I'm sure that for many of us, as we try to make this a rhythm in our life, we miss two Sundays in a row or whatever day you want to choose. as We miss Sabbath two weeks in a row. and We think, oh, I'm the worst. How am I supposed to make this a rhythm in my life? And then it just kind of, it spirals on from there. And then when we think about Sabbath again in our life, it doesn't become a source of life and celebration. It becomes a source of, oh, it's that thing. Yeah, work, another thing I gotta do. It's not another thing we gotta do. Man was, <laughs> think about Jesus's words, right? The Sabbath was a gift to man. Man was not made to have another thing they have to do, right? God gave us the Sabbath as an invitation to celebrate, slow down, and rest. And so as we uh, go from here, we're going to sing one more song. Um, We're going to uh, go back into our lives, into the rest of our weeks, right? And uh, my encouragement for you, just as you think about this week, as you feel yourself, this week I had some really hard interactions at work and I felt just, I felt my, you know, somebody's frustrating you and you just feel your grip kind of tighten. Yesterday, I woke up, I was frustrated at this person. And I just noticed that as the day went on, I was becoming less frustrated with this person. And by like three or four o'clock, I actually felt, I've never really heard God speak to me, but I felt God just whispered to me a little bit, will you pray for this person? And not like pray God that they would know how they have wronged me and how they're in the wrong and they need to apologize, but like pray for their family and for their flourishing as a person and for me to have kindness for them when I feel really, really frustrated. I did not feel that this last week at all. And I didn't feel it yesterday when I woke up. It took hours of slowing down and resting before my soul was like, hey, do you kind of see you're making this person an enemy? And maybe what would it look like to love them as Jesus would love them? So my encouragement to you this week is just as you go throughout your week and you feel these different things, you're thinking about what Sabbath could look like. Just jot down a few things that you think would help bring you life or rest. If you're part of a family, talk about it together as a family. uh, If you live with housemates or roommates, talk about it with those people have a conversation and maybe a little bit of a game plan as to what it could look like. it doesn't have to go exactly according to plan. It likely won't go exactly according to plan. Uh, But I think having just some thought and putting some energy into what a day of rest could look like. So that when that day comes like Becca, prepare that meal in advance so that you can sit down and just enjoy it and rest together. So with that, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one more song. Jesus, thank you for uh, the fact that you show us what true ruling and rest looks like. Jesus, thank you that you uh, didn't come to bring the sword and to conquer earthly kingdoms by dominating them as many people wanted you to, but you came to lay down your life for others. Jesus, you came to stop, to help the person on the side of the road when you had somewhere you were trying to be. And thank you that you showed us what it also looks like to then still find rest and to lean into the good, beautiful things that you've given us, to not allow ourselves to be conquered by accomplishment and accumulation, God. We pray, Jesus, that you would show us more and more each day what it looks like to rule and to rest as you've made us to. We love you and we praise your name. Amen.